Hello, everyone. This is Reb Brad, and you're listening to the Soccer Chaplains United podcast from the Touchline. For the month of January, my best mate, Fraser Kay, has been lending his talents to us with his writing and narration as we hear about the time King David abuses his power and his position. David's fall from grace and his abandonment of kingly duty means he needs the grace of God in his life to help him recover. Well, Fraser and I's friendship goes back nearly 20 years. We met in 2001 at a backyard barbecue for seminary students and their families. Fraser hails from Scotland. He lives and works in Glasgow today. He's written several books and narrated a few audiobooks. Last year, Fraser shared with us his biblical monologue, The King's Table. You can find his works on Amazon by looking up his pen name, Fraser K. Let me spell that for you. Fraser spelled with an S, and K is spelled K-A-Y. Well, today we hear parts three and four in The Abuse of Power and the Grace of God, a biblical monologue featuring David, king of Israel, two years after murdering Uriah and taking Bathsheba as his wife. I'll come on after their narration to offer a few questions for reflection and a prayer. He's found the space, and he's found the back of the net. Just a little off foot, thinking he's going to go far post. Not strong enough with his right hand. Whips that one in. Far post, almost made him in, and they have. He has the hat trick. The second in his career. The third of the night. The hat trick hero. Talked about you're not going to be able to sustain that kind of pressure. To the corner. Goes towards the near post. And you're the angle. And what a goal! What a goal! The abuse of power and the grace of God. A biblical monologue featuring David, king of Israel, two years after murdering Uriah and taking Bathsheba as his wife. Written and narrated by Fraser Kay. Part 3. Nathan. Have you ever met a prophet? Not an ordinary kind of person. Well, Nathan was no ordinary man. One of those people God sends to encourage or rebuke you. Sometimes a bit of both. The Spirit of God sometimes tells Nathan things you've only said in your bedroom or just thought in your head. My last conversation with him had actually been a landmark moment in my journey. I recall sitting in my palace thinking about my being in my huge new house while the Ark of the Covenant was inside a tent. Deep down, I had wanted to build a palace, a house for the Lord, a building fit for the King of Heaven, somewhere the Ark could take centre stage. I'd communicated this to Nathan, who'd said to do whatever was in my heart. The very next day, he returned with an amazing message that God was going to build me a house instead. Not a literal house like the one I wanted to build for the Lord, but a family dynasty that would last forever. One of my sons, one of my descendants, would not only build a temple for the Lord, but would possess an everlasting kingdom. God's love would never be taken from him. Through one of my sons, my house and my kingdom would last forever. It was like God had read my mind and turned the tables on me. I was so overawed I went off, sat down before the Lord and wrote down a long prayer of thanks 
summarising just how I felt about what God had promised me. It was without question the pinnacle of my reign, the richest and most spiritual point of my life and leadership. One of those moments in which you feel consumed by heaven, as if God has draped his robe over you, pulling you in. So when Nathan came to see me, I thought it would be good news. But he looked straight at me. Didn't miss about. Right to business. Yet untypically, he began with a story. He said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, having grown up looking after sheep, I could relate. My blood boiled. I assumed it related to one of the subjects of my kingdom. What kind of a man in my kingdom would do such a thing? There was only one outcome for him. I burst out, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. I was expecting some information about the whereabouts of this man, a name, a town, so I could dispatch some soldiers to drag the offender back to the palace. He had to answer for his wicked crime. Nathan's next statement came out through my back. You are the man! Speared, I stood there in shock while he carried on with what turned out to be a prophetic tirade. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. My heart of stone broke open. Light flooded my eyes. My conscience, darkened by my actions over so many months, sparked into life. I felt Uriah's blood 
running down my hands. I stood there for some moments, trying to take it all in, before confessing, I have sinned against the Lord. And I meant it. It was not some cursory, pathetic apology by someone who got caught. I had been caught, but I had known and loved the Lord long enough to know that he was gracious to all who repented, even if there were grave consequences still to come. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So, there was heaven's verdict. I had despised the Lord, rejected his word, killed a man and taken his wife. I had treated God and his word like dog's dirt on the bottom of my shoe. What joy I had left departed, and a sense of impending doom filled my mind. I determined to put down some words, a prayer, a song of confession to God. Part 4. Contrition Some of you listening will no doubt be surprised and disgusted by what I did. Isn't this the great David, who as a young man defeated the giant Goliath? Isn't this the king over all Israel, God's anointed leader? As you can imagine, I reflected a great deal during the days that followed. Contempt for the Lord. I deserved to die, but I was spared. I tend to write things down, often turning them into songs and having them dispatched to the director of music to create some melody to accompany the words. These are not lyrics I ever envisaged piecing together, but they are among my most important confessions. My eyes were open again, my heart broken, my conscience awake. Here's what I wrote in full. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence 
or take your Holy Spirit from me? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thanks, Razor. It's amazing to me as I listen. I had never thought about David's relationship with Nathan and how the last time David and Nathan had been together, it had been for a good word from God. David, as Fraser narrated just a little bit ago, had literally enjoyed the peak of his spiritual life. God would forever establish his throne and a dynasty for David. I think it's hard for us in the West, and and maybe even in these modern times, to put much emotional energy and thought into having a lasting kingdom. (laughs) We aren't kings, most of us. Maybe today we might best relate to this by having a strong retirement savings portfolio or making sure that we can pay for our children's college or something like that. I do wonder, though, if David had any sense of what was going to happen once Nathan showed up on the scene. Nathan was a prophet, and prophets have two main duties that they fulfill. They can sometimes predict future things. They might say, this will happen in the year X, Y, and Z. But they have another duty, another role, that is more often and more frequent to their office as prophet. And that is, they speak into what's going on in the day and and age and the circumstances going on around in that moment. And they speak powerfully into those things. They interpret what's really going on and they speak much needed truth into a particular situation. They shine light into dark places. So here's the first question I want to offer for us to think about in reflecting on this part of the narrative that Fraser shared with us today. Is there anyone in your life who's like Nathan? Is there anyone who's close to God and can speak truth into your life, even when the truth-telling might be hard to swallow or not easy to take? I've been in many places, in the church world, in the corporate world, and in the football world, and I see people shy away from the truth-tellers, as it were. Footballers that I've served as a, a chaplain all of a sudden get really quiet. They stop coming to the group offerings or the pre-match prayers. They feel a sense of shame or they try to hide from the rev or chappy, as it were, afraid that they might be found out, afraid that they might be challenged to change their thinking or change their behavior or their lifestyle. I've watched pastors and leaders in the church world too, surrounding themselves with yes people, and they quell or crush anyone who vocalizes a difference of opinion or shows himself to not be all in or totally on board with a particular direction, no matter how obtuse or uncaring that direction might be. 
They quietly and quickly eliminate voices of dissent from their circles and never listen to different ideas, believing only that they hear the voice of God. Well, friends, we all need a voice like Nathan in our lives. Even myself as a chaplain, I need other pastors, friends who will challenge me and hold me accountable. For me, one of these people is a pastor named Mike. He and I meet monthly and we speak more often than that. He asks me the hard questions about my marriage, about my thought life, about issues of forgiveness and repentance that I need to be concerned about and and confronted with. You know, sometimes the Nathan in your life may change, but we always need a Nathan to speak truth, especially hard truth into our lives. So, who is your Nathan? Who has that prophetic role, that gift? Who's the one who can confront you with issues of truth? A second important lesson for us to learn from today's episode has to do with our response to truth. When we're confronted with the truth, how do we respond? Imagine Nathan having to stand up to the king and declare, you are the man. I confess, I sometimes have shied away from the hard word that someone needs to hear because I was afraid to lose their friendship. I was afraid of what they might think of me or or what they might do to me. And David's response is noteworthy. He confesses he's wrong. And he goes on to pen some of the best words asking for forgiveness and asking for God to restore him to fellowship and relationship, asking for God's grace in his life, asking that his sin might be forgiven, covered over, and forgotten. Friends, I usually see two different responses when someone's confronted with truth. Either there's a hardening of the heart or there's a broken spirit. So my question, my second question out of this to you is, which response typifies you? Think back to a moment when you've been confronted with the truth of a sin or a mistake, a failing, an error. Maybe you were caught cheating on a test. Maybe you stole something. Maybe you were unfaithful in a committed relationship. How did you eventually respond? Were you angry? Defensive? Did you put up walls? Did you become hard-hearted? Were you broken? Were you sad and repentant? David's words of contrition can be found in Psalm 51. And I want to read to you from verse 17, because we read these powerful, powerful words. David writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, what is the posture and position of our hearts when we're confronted with the hard reality of our sinful ways? We need to learn from David that in those moments, we need to come fully and vulnerably to God in brokenness and in repentance. He will lift us up and restore us, but he cannot begin to do anything in us until there is nothing left in us. Countless times I've gotten a late night text or uh, an early, early morning phone call, a message from a footballer, or a concern. Rev, I was unfaithful. What do I do? So many times I've, I've sat across in the room from someone faced with the reality that their sin and wrongdoing was unraveling and they, they stood to lose everything. Some of them put on a tough, defiant posture. I can hide the truth. I, I don't need to tell her. I don't need to tell him what I've done. Other times I've watched the heart of the wrongdoer just melt with contrition and repentance. 
And as we journeyed through it, they, they knew that the hard work of repentance and forgiveness lay ahead for them, but they were willing to go through it because, because their love was stronger for the one they had hurt, because they somehow believed that God might see them through to a point of reconciliation. Friend, I beg you, confess your sin. Ask God to give you a repentant heart, a contrite heart. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says this about this attitude. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. James 5.16 also speaks to our need for this confession of sin. It, it speaks to this sense that, or this, this fact that there's emotional and spiritual and, and even physical healing that comes when we confess our sins. And it says in James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Friends, find a Nathan, call your chaplain, call a pastor, a trusted friend, someone whom you know is close to God, someone whom you know won't shortchange the truth that you need to hear. Confess, let that person journey with you on the road of repentance towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, friends, today I want to close with a prayer of confession. I want to encourage you and I to confess the things that that we try to hide, the sins that we try to cover up. Like David, there are words and prayers and tears that we can give to God as we seek help, as, as we have a broken spirit and contrite heart. Maybe as an exercise going away from today, maybe you can take the words of Psalm 51 and rewrite your own words of repentance to God. But let me pray. God, I dare not even lift my eyes. My sin is before me. I feel so ashamed. My heart broken, my gut wrenched. I can barely breathe. And truth is, I may be more concerned with how this will look. I'm more concerned about my own image or self-preservation. God, help me. A broken spirit, a contrite heart. I know these are the things you desire, but this is so contrary to where I am in life. I can't be weak. I can't be broken. I can't be vulnerable. I won't survive. But maybe, just maybe something inside of me needs to die. Something inside of me needs to change. Oh God, don't let me just go through the motions. Lord, don't let me just get all religious in some moment. God, my God, don't let me just fake it to make it, but have mercy on me. Show your grace to me once again. Let me not walk a broad path to perdition, but the narrow road to restoration. Help me persevere to do the work of repentance and seeking forgiveness. Wash away this ugly stain of sin. Create, make me new. Restore me as only you can. Amen. Well, this is Reb Brad and the voice of Fraser K. Coming to you from the Touchline.